Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Before we get started, remember that Rare Sense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Today I'm speaking with Rob Sweetman. Rob is an entrepreneur and former Navy SEAL who served on active duty from 2010 to 2018. After his time in the military, he turned his attention to studying sleep and helping others get a better night's rest. He now runs both for-profit and non-profit sleep enterprises. During our conversation, we discuss the causes and effects of long-term sleep deprivation and disruption, the prefrontal cortex versus the amygdala, the ideal amount of sleep, night and shift work, short sleeping, safety concerns with a lack of sleep, keeping a sleep diary, winding down before bed, when to go to sleep and wake up, biphasic sleeping and napping, sleeping with background noise and ambient light, bedroom temperature, the effects of Wi-Fi, sleep tracking with wearables, mattress selection, and other topics. Sleep is something many of us now take more seriously than ever, and I think based on this conversation, you'll understand why. I really enjoyed it. Rob's a wealth of knowledge on the topic. So without further ado, here's Rob Sweetman. All right, Rob, welcome, man. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm yeah, excited to talk to you. This is awesome. This is actually, we've never met. This is sort of like, <laughs> we've, we've never met in person, certainly, but we've never even seen one another. So we've only briefly spoken on the phone. But um, so let's just start off with, uh, tell us, tell everybody who you are and what you do and give a little background. Yeah, I... Um was a Navy SEAL. I think that's how we were connected, Chris, for our, through our Navy SEAL network. Um, yep. But, you know, I didn't join right off the bat. I became an entrepreneur and I was very self-serving and I did my thing back in Greenville, South Carolina, until I reached a point where I was not finding fulfillment. I knew that, like, within my life, there were some things that I wanted to do to really feel like... Um, I live my life to the fullest, but also um, serve my country. And I'm very much a patriot. I have a patriotic family. And so I, that kind of ate at me for a long time. And it wasn't until I was 28 that I decided to sign that dotted line. So my recruiter got me into the program, uh, 5326 whatever program. And uh, at the time, you could go straight from the streets into the team's assuming that you could make it through one tiny little thing uh, called BUDS and then a bunch of other stuff too. But um, I ended up serving from 2010 to 2018. So I did a, a straight eight years. Um, I felt like that was a good number. My time was cut short because I had an injury. Uh, I hurt my back. And so they medically processed me out. Uh, that was a very depressing time for me. But it wasn't just my back that I was struggling with. Um, I was struggling with uh, sleep and truthfully drinking and a ton of other things, but sleep was, was seemed to be at the center of all of my problems. Like whether it was anxiety about not being able to be a team guy and not being able to sleep at night or, you know, not feeling like I could sleep and then using uh, NyQuil or alcohol or whatever to go to bed. 
um, I knew that I had sleep problems and I knew that I wanted to do better. I knew that I could do better. Simultaneously, um, my buddy who I did a platoon with, uh, Ryan Larkin, had at the same time as I was transitioning committed suicide. And I, I watched his situation and I've had a lot of talks with uh, his dad, Frank, and, you know, Chris Free, the who wrote The Operator Syndrome. And, you know, after the fact, you can analyze this thing until, you know, it just can't be analyzed anymore. But my my perspective on this whole thing was that sleep had a big deal, had a big part of Ryan's downfall, meaning like his sleep was terrible and it impacted his mental health. Some things happened in life, which things always happen in life, but he wasn't able to handle that in the right way. His mental health wasn't there. His sleep health wasn't there. And then he ended up taking his life. And it's, it's really just a terrible situation because we, we've seen this uh, time and time again with our brothers. And it just is so freaking depressing. But I never felt like there was somebody that was looking at sleep. And so I wanted to be that man. I wanted to focus on sleep. I wanted to find out, you know, first of all, is there actually a connection between sleep health and mental health? I really didn't know. Um, we, we don't care about sleep in the teams. We're just like, go, go, go. You got a problem with, you know, being awake, drink another, rip it, uh, or do whatever you have to do. Um, so we never respected sleep in the teams, but I saw sleep as something that was just it was killing me, man. It was, I was really getting strung out on the insomnia, bad sleep habits. And I felt like there was something there. So I transitioned, uh, out of the military and found my new path. My new path was like, I'm going to figure out this sleep thing. I'm going to make, I'm going to be all about sleep. I actually started building sleep technology conceptually. And I, I wanted to bring some of this technology to market and that ended up being, um, I wouldn't say a dead end, but I was never able to fully do any of that stuff. And so that just brought me on this, this journey over the last six years of figuring out how in the heck can I actually make a difference in the sleep space? So what did, um, go back to kind of what was going on with you in terms of bad sleep, right? What did that what did that look like for you? What were you, how did you know that you weren't, I mean, was it just like you couldn't sleep or was it the fact that you woke up and felt like you weren't rested? What did it look like for you that you concluded? Yeah, that's such, that's such a tough question, Chris, because I have all this knowledge now, right? So how do I look back, you know, six, eight, how many years ago and think inside of my mind, my uneducated mind at that point and say, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Um, I have to erase all the knowledge that I have now and say that I probably thought that I just wasn't getting enough like mental and physical recovery. Like when I woke up, I wasn't feeling 100%. Like I, I'd hit the snooze on my alarm. I'd want to go back to bed. I wasn't um, making the gains in the gym. I didn't even want to go to the gym because I didn't feel like it because I'm too tired. Um, my nutritional habits were out of control. I guess I didn't know that was related to sleep health. It, it actually is. I can talk about that if you want. Um, but I just felt like crap. And I thought that if I could just get better sleep, 
I could feel better. I guess that's in summary, like if I just could get better sleep, I could feel better. And what was, so what was the first thing that you did, right? Like, so I think um, sleep's an interesting thing because like you, I think so many of us have gone through life um, and certainly in previous generations too, where it's like, ah, suck it up. Like you don't need, like just get up earlier, right? And, And you don't, you know, you don't really need all that much sleep and, and, um, and that kind of attitude. And I think that is changing in a huge way where people are sort of starting to realize, yeah, it's really detrimental to not sleep enough and not sleep well and to sacrifice your sleep in various ways. Um, so when you started on this path, how'd you do it? Like, what was the first thing that you kind of tried to tackle or where did you start looking or, you know, what did that look like for you? Yeah, it was a slow process. Um, at the time I was drinking NyQuil to go to sleep every night. Um, I, I had it measured out like one cap. If I, if I, if it was a full cap, I feel like too groggy in the morning. And if I kind of like throttled it back a little bit, I could like use the drug and go to sleep. And it feels great when you drink NyQuil, you you're almost like high going to bed. It's like, it's awesome. Right. And then you wake up and you have, you feel the side effects. So I was playing that game. Um, so I knew there's something wrong with there, but I wasn't ready to make any changes. Um, so my first question that was driving was this question about Ryan. The question was, does sleep health affect mental health, right? Like some people don't even want to talk about mental health, but let's look at mental health in the same way we look at nutritional health, physical health. Does sleep health impact mental health? And if you ask, you know, a young frogman, he's going to say, no, sleep health, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like I've been through buds. I can operate nighttime missions. If I need to wake up, I use stimulants. If I need to go to bed, I use sedatives. But over a career, um, that can become a vicious cycle that starts to eat away at you. But I didn't know how much sleep health could affect mental health. So I started asking questions. I went to Navy uh, Balboa Medical Center because that's where I was going for a ton of different appointments as they were processing me out of the Navy. And I just started popping my head in different offices and, um, you know, doctors are sitting around on their break, like, who is this guy asking questions? But I was just really focused on getting the answers that I wanted, truthful answers, um, not necessarily the answers that I thought they might be. So I talked to these doctors. And unfortunately, what I found out was that medical doctors do not have adequate training in sleep and in sleep health. Uh, They might you know, go over it for about two weeks in medical school. And it's not a bust on doctors is that they have much more um, surgery and like, you know, drug interaction oriented focuses in their training. Um, So there's a huge gap. So if MDs don't have a whole lot of information on sleep, well, who does? It turns out that there are some MDs like uh, pulmonary doctors that work at the sleep clinics that know a little bit about sleep but they pretty much focus on obstructive sleep apnea, which is a big issue in the military. Um, However, it's not the main focus of what I was trying to get at, right? It's like, okay, obstructive sleep apnea, there's a couple of of ways to to solve that, whether it's a CPAP or oral device, or now they have the Inspire surgery 
uh, protocol. But what I was getting at was more of this um, this slow grind of sleep deprivation leading to the cheese kind of slipping off the cracker, anxiety causing sleep deprivation, and, and it turning into a cycle where mental health is affecting sleep health, sleep health is making mental health worse. And so I kept asking questions, and it turns out that the people who knew the most in this space were the PhD types, the researchers who were working in um, neurobiology, neurophysiology, and these are um, expanding fields of study that weren't as uh, quite as big as they are now. Um, and some of these brilliant scientists have been doing work um, on chronobiology and, and all of these things, you know, related to sleep and circadian disorders and all these different things. Um, and it turned out that they had a ton of great information, but that information was kind of under lock and key because they were trying to publish. They're trying to publish. They're trying to get their doctorate. They're doing their postdoctorate. And they're trying to get into a, a scholarly journal. And it's this game for them of getting published and getting recognized among their colleagues. But what does that mean to me? It means nothing. Like, how is this information being kind of <laughs> right. held? Yeah. yeah, like there, there's a barrier between guys like us that need the information yeah. and the 10 pound brains that have it. So go back to Ryan and, you know, your sort of supposition that part of the reason he was suffering was because he wasn't sleeping. I think that's a very common thing for veterans, probably for other people that are like veterans, whether it's a first responder or a frontline worker or something like that, that have shift work or that are in high stress jobs where their lives are at stake. How does that happen, right? Like, how? why is it that so many, and I know a lot of people like this, just like, man, I have so much trouble sleeping or I wake up a hundred times every night or I can't fall asleep or where does that come from? Like, why do we find that so many veterans struggle sleeping? That's a very good question. And one that has been um, debated for many, many years. Um, I think I have the answer. If we if we look at uh, the work going back as far as uh, Watson and Guthrie in the 70s, they talk about this battle between the prefrontal cortex, which is right here in the front of your head. It's top down thinking. It's where we have um, more, you know, regulated thought patterns that uh, result in a lot of times better choices, but uh, the battle between the prefrontal and the amygdala, right? And the amygdala yeah. might be considered the fight or flight uh, center. It might be uh, considered a place where all experiences are codified with emotions. But when we are in the military or when we are in a high stress uh, career scenario, whether it's firefighting or, or first response or military, um, a lot of times we're we're using the amygdala function um, to stay alive or to it's kind of like our spidey senses. Right. And, and it, it has saved our lives. Right. And so that that immediate animalistic response is what we have to rely on in certain situations. The challenge is if we think of the amygdala uh, in the gym and the amygdala is pumping iron because we're using it every single day, this is our job. And now the, the amygdala function is so strong that it becomes an, an overwhelming uh, pattern, right? So within a, a 
portion of the the brain called the basal ganglia right now it becomes the overarching response mechanism well what we know is that this is related to a sympathetic nervous system response right which right. is exactly what we want if a tiger is attacking us like in tribal times right or there is a threat or you know contact left right the problem is we have to be able to turn that off and get into a para, what's called a parasympathetic nervous system state, rest and digest, and allow the prefrontal to take over and allow our, our mind to have, you know, relaxed thought and think through things and not be in a high stress and a high uh, anxiety state. The challenge is that over a career that amygdala has been in the gym pumping iron and it's jacked. And the prefrontal may have atrophied. There may be less blood flow into the prefrontal, which is why prozosin is surprisingly effective for PTSD, because it's a blood pressure medicine. Who would have known, right? But anyways, if we focus on changing the balance between the prefrontal and the amygdala function, um, now we, we've not only identified that that is a thing, right? But now we're addressing it. Um, and once we begin to allow the prefrontal to take over, uh, get the prefrontal in the gym, pumping iron, so it can yeah. compete yeah. with the amygdala function, um, then we're able to, to balance things out a little bit. And then we're able to make, um, once we're sensitive of our autonomic nervous system, we're able to make better choices in our daily behaviors and thoughts that lead to better outcomes. But if you don't have that training, you don't have that information, and you've been in a career of first response or military and you're coming out or you're still in it or whatever, and the amygdala function, you're always in sympathetic nervous system state, you're always in fight or flight, that will lead to tons of problems, adrenal fatigue. Like, I mean, you can't live like that. And yeah. so if you try to go to sleep in a, in a sympathetic nervous system state, you're hypervigilant, you're anxiety ridden. I can't tell you how many people, Chris, I talk to that wake up an hour after they try to go to sleep thinking that someone's trying to break into their house and they pull out their gun and they go clear the house. Yeah. Super common, super common. Yeah. Why are we, why are we so worried about someone breaking into our house? Because we're still in the moment. We're still in a hypervigilant state and that anxiety eats us alive. And it, it doesn't, you know, one year of being in this, you know, you may not notice anything, right? But now you're talking 10 20 years down the road and your body is suffering for so many different reasons. So I hope that answers your question. That's my yeah, perspective. Yeah, it does. I think the question then becomes actually, so let's, let's back up because I want to make sure we've got a basis for why this is important. So um, I'm actually in the middle of uh, Matt Walker's book, why we sleep, um, which it's one of those things. I don't know if you listen to that Andrew Huberman podcast about alcohol, where he just kind of talks about, the, the effects of alcohol. And it's, it's sort of, it's just so terrifying because you listen to that and you go, God, I've done so much damage to myself. And this stuff yeah. is just horrible. Um, Matt's book is kind of like that for me as well, where you just, you realize like how damaging it is to not sleep enough, not sleep properly. And you realize how much of your life you've, for guys like us, we've had crap sleep. We haven't slept at all. We've done things like hell week and been up for a week at a time, or then we've worked, we've done night shifts where just our circadian rhythm is completely jacked up. And the trouble for me, you talk about anxiety is like, 
is uh, it's hard for me to not then get freaked out by that, right? To be like, oh my God, I've done so much damage. And if I, and if yeah. I have one night where I only sleep five hours, I'm going to be completely fucked for the, you know, like, totally. <laughs> but can you, so can you just kind of back up and talk about why sleep is important and how much sleep is you need and what the effects of lack of sleep are, I know that's a huge topic. I mean, Matt wrote a 300 page book about it, but like just yeah. briefly why it's so critical and like what it does when you don't get enough sleep. Well, Matt Walker does a great job. And over the last 20 years, he has really um, done some great work in the sleep space. Um, I can't wait to meet Matt one day. Um, I was chasing him around, trying to make contact with him for about a year, like five years ago. It, he just released the book, Why We Sleep. I could never get in touch with him. Um, so if you have a lead, let me know. I don't. Um, I, I don't. I wish I did. <laughs> I'd love to talk to him well, too. Well, I, I send his book. I recommend it and I send his book to every single one of our clients with uh, the 62 Romeo program, which we can talk about later. Yeah, for um, sure. To try to summarize um, why sleep is important and give the listeners something to chew on today, we will notice um, the immediate effects of sleep deprivation the next day uh, in terms of emotional stability, cognitive function. And in fact, if you stay awake for 20 hours straight, which happens all the time, I work with a ton of active duty firefighters right now, yeah. 20 hours straight we can have the same cognitive performance as being legally inebriated. Now, wow. if you're an engineer, which is the truck driver um, on a fire crew, and you've been awake for 20 hours and you're legally inebriated, according to this uh, metric, and you're driving this truck barreling down the road full speed to an emergency situation, what happens if you have an accident? I mean, this could be a, a terrible, terrible situation, but yet, it's allowed to happen all the time. Now, how do we know that someone has the same cognitive performance as someone who's legally inebriated? We know that uh, based on a psychomotor vigilance task. That's one of the ways that we can test. Now, what is that? You can think of like, if you remember the Lumosity, the little click, click, click thing on the computer, you know, the more you do it, the faster you get. Um, it's kind of like that. So NASA has one uh, PVT app on uh, Apple. Uh, I don't think it's on Android that you can download for free right now. But in essence, you test your cognitive performance before, and then you test your cognitive performance after sleep deprivation. And the degradation of cognitive performance is equivalent to that that you would see after drinking enough alcohol to have a 0.08 BAC. So that's how we test it. Um, you also know that um, you can also hit similar metrics if you short sleep by one hour each night for five nights straight. And I mean, we've all done that. That's not a very uh, hard thing to do. No. So when we think about like the legality of driving legally intoxicated, the, the DUI, the potential repercussions, what if you hit somebody, what if you hit a family, right? But then it's okay to have the same cognitive performance from sleep deprivation. Well, I mean, there's a ton of obstacles there. Like, how do you measure sleep deprivation? How do you stop people from doing it? I get all that. But the point is, is that sleep deprivation affects us, right? Now, there's, there's other nuances that are, are very interesting. Like, 
one that um, is kind of surprising that I, you know, I reference this one a lot because I deal with uh, police officers as well as veterans, but your emotional intelligence is impacted. And, and specifically, like when you have, um, when you're interacting with other human beings, we're reading facial expressions all the time, right? So if we read a facial expression and we are able to figure out uh, what that person's intentions are, whether they're a threat or a friendly, right? That those decisions are happening kind of behind the scenes in our brain and help us make good decisions and they could help save our own lives. But if you're sleep deprived, your ability to read facial expressions and figure out what that actually means is completely degraded, right? So imagine being in a life or death situation where you have finger on the trigger and you're supposed to figure out this situation, but you are sleep deprived. It's not yeah. good and it's not safe. Um, you know, I say that with caution because a lot of our first responders are unfortunately working sleep deprived and God bless them. I mean, it's like the system is not allowing them to get adequate rest. We're working on skeleton crews. Things have gotten really, really bad since COVID. Um, and these these folks are working their tail off. Um, so I, I don't say any of this to um, as, as to cast a negative light on them. It's just the situation we have at hand. Now, that is the immediate effect. Right. Um, but what happens if we have a career of sleep deprivation? And I can tell you through, you know, research at Naval Postgraduate School and I'll uh, call out Dr. Nita Shattuck, who has done incredible work for the Navy over at NPS, as well as uh, Rachel Markwald. I think she's over at, um, at Point Loma. These folks in the crew endurance team have done so much research. It's changed everything for the Navy, as well as, um, you know, we're leveraging that, uh, that information for firefighters who have less um, resources uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the analytical data uh, with the fire crews. But what we're seeing is that um, not only are, you know, people starting to have mental health issues, but we see a ton of issues surrounding just the way the body functions, meaning like um, endocrine function, like hormone issues, um, hypertension issues, um, weight gain issues, which can actually be even more short term. Um, from sleep deprivation, but you live a career of, of doing five and dimes or shift work or, you know, just not respecting sleep, whether you have a choice or not, and your body will pay the price. Cancer rates go up. I mean, if, if somebody wants to know all the bad stuff, just read Matthew Walker's book, uh, Why We Sleep, because he outlines everything uh, in a smart way. But you want to get good sleep. I was a train wreck coming out of the Navy. And I can tell you that by getting good sleep and by improving my nutrition, everything has turned around. I am such a solid human being today because I take care of myself and I put sleep first. And I got to tell you, man, I was a train wreck coming out of the teams. So, so what is, what is the ideal prescription there? A lot of times we hear eight hours, right? Like we need eight hours of sleep. Is that true is that the same for everybody is it something you know does it vary from person to person seven to nine hours and then does the time of day matter is there a difference between let's say sleeping from 9 p.m to 5 a.m versus 11 p.m to 7 a.m yeah it's tough to say uh all human beings need to have eight hours sleep 
uh, every single person is unique and their situation is different and special and important. Um, I would say that seven to nine hours um, is a good start. I am a seven hour and 15 minute sleeper. That's an mm. optimal time frame for me. But if you are an eight hour and 30 minute sleeper, we shouldn't pass judgment because that's okay for you. The most important thing is to find that optimal time window so you're not oversleeping, you're not undersleeping. And that takes a little bit of practice. I do work with um, folks on one-on-one. I do private um, work with sleep. And then we also do group classes with um, primarily for veterans and first responders. We're opening it up to civilians here soon through the 62 Romeo program. Um, And what I see with all of these folks that are coming through is that um, everybody has different sleep needs, right? There's some people that, you know, if we look at Jocko Willink, uh, who I I adore, he's an amazing human being, but sometimes it kind of bothers me when he says, I only sleep four hours a day. Um, I know that that question has been asked of Matthew Walker and he uh, carefully diverted it probably because Jocko is a black belt in jujitsu and one of the most famous Navy SEALs. I probably would do the same thing. Right. But I'll say that the the number of people um, who are able to function on four hours of sleep um, is pretty much limited to a specific uh, gene that is. I would say that if you look at the numbers, it's more likely of getting struck by lightning twice in the same exact spot than having this gene. So (laughs) I don't know if Jocko has that gene, but what I would say is, is that we probably need to get more than four hours sleep. Um, Now I will say that there is, there are ways to get uh, more recovery. If you're working on a four hour sleep window, I know that because I'm working with firefighters and we're, we're working through that right now. But to answer your question, If we start with, um, let's say, seven hours of sleep, and by the way, we should try to make that consistent. Consistency is key. That's what we're going to, you know, come back to every single time. The the definition of circadian rhythm, right? We're coming back to these these cycles that we want to repeat every day. So if we go to bed at a certain time and we wake up at a certain time and the the amount of sleep that we have is um, seven hours, Uh, or if you feel more comfortable starting with eight hours, then what we're looking for is um, how do I feel when that alarm clock goes off? Do I feel tired? Because if I'm still tired and I want to sleep through that, I might need more sleep. But it might also be that the quality of my sleep is poor. And so that's when you need somebody like me or somebody like my staff to come in and kind of take a look at your situation. And we can work through a ton of that stuff. But let's just assume that you have decent sleep. Um, If you're waking up before your alarm, then you probably can throttle it back a little bit. So let's say that you end up being a seven hour sleeper and that's your sweet spot. If we're waking up at zero six and that means you actually are going to bed at 11. Right. So. That's later than most people think they should go to bed. So I would say that um, one of the techniques that we teach a lot of is is the wind down routine. So if we take one hour, so in this situation, 10 p.m., and we put up the phone, we put up the emails, we put up any, you know, debates we have with our spouse, we put up anything that's going to excite us. We're not doing heavy workouts. Uh, we're not taking, you know, ice baths or cold shower, the new you know popular thing right now. We're just relaxing. 
we put on our nighttime clothes. We put on um, relaxing music if you're into that. White noise is great for sleep. And we maybe have uh, toned down lights, like maybe even amber lights or candle lights or things like that. But that, that one hour is our wind down. That's a great time to do meditation, breathing, mindfulness, gratitude, whatever. But what we're not doing is getting excited or amped up about the next day. We're not putting blue light in our face, but we relax. And so during that period of time, that's our transition. We're just chilling out. And then at 11, our goal is to get in bed fall asleep immediately as fast as possible. We sleep until zero six. We wake up at seven. If we wake up without an alarm, boom, 6.59, you wake up or uh, 5.59, you wake up, you know, you're, you're hitting that sweet spot. Now I will say that that is a, a monophasic style of sleeping. That means we have one sleep period. That's not the only way to sleep, Chris. We, you know, traditionally as human beings, we've, we've slept biphasically, meaning think of like Latin American countries, they have a nap, a nap period. So I'll give you an example. Like my dad was always a six hour sleeper. And I'm like, well, how does he, you know, as I'm transitioning into being a sleep scientist, I'm like, how did he manage a six hour sleep period without having some negative side effects? And the secret was that he always took a 20 or 30 minute nap at lunch. He'd go out to his car. He always had a station wagon and he'd open up the back of that thing and he'd just lay in the back of it for years, decades. And so we religiously had that uh, nap built in. And we know now that those naps can actually supplement a full sleep cycle. It's pretty incredible. Wow. And so really? he was. He was getting full sleep restoration. It's just that he had two sleep periods. And so that may be what Jocko is doing to successfully recover and maintain <laughs> his beautiful physique. Um, so with that, if we go even farther, what do we do with firefighters who are on a 48-hour shift and we can only get that three or four-hour window of sleep? Does it make sense to build in more than one nap? That's, what's, that's what mm. polyphasic sleeping is. And that's... Not recommended for the average person, but in a shift work situation, it absolutely is recommended. Any any type of consistent sleep is better than just not getting any sleep at all. It, so is it, is it worth your time then or worth anybody's time to take, a, let's say, a week and basically t- remove any obstacle that forces you out of bed in the morning if you can or get in bed earlier and just time it to see where you naturally sort of fall out, right? Like I'm, I'm getting in bed. I'm going to set my timer on my phone, turn it in airplane mode. I, I like to do that. Right. Let it run. And then when I wake up, whenever I wake up, I shut it off. I see what that is. And I like track that over a week to kind of see what my optimal amount of sleep is that kind of, would that work? Is that a, something recommended for people to do something like that? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I think the first thing is that we should get a notebook and we should start a sleep diary or a sleep log. And so what a sleep log looks like is um, you can just take any book, like, you know, this one thing I learned in the teams, always have a book with you to take notes. Um, And you wanna write down in the morning, what time did I go to bed? What time did I wake up? How long did it take me to fall asleep? And did I have any sleep disturbances? For example, how many times did I get up 
to go to pee or how many times that I feel like I woke, uh, woke up, did I have any dreams? And then when I uh, woke up, how did I feel? Like what time did I wake up? Um, how long did it take me to get out of bed? Things like this. Um, this can prove to be very revealing, not on the first day, but after let's say seven days or 10 days, you can start to see a trend. If you want to tweak it, the minimum uh, recommended uh, amount of sleep to carry on our uh, normal physiological processes is five and a half hours of sleep. That's what Dr. Jacobs at Harvard talks about uh, in his cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia protocol. And basically, <clears throat> I do this all the time uh, when I sleep restrict uh, with clients is that um, once we get that five and a half hours, we will be able to function. It won't be optimal. So if someone wants to try sleep restrictions on their own, maybe not go all the way down to five and a half hours. Maybe we just start with six and a half or something like that and see how you feel. So start with six and a half. See how you feel. Are you waking up with your alarm? And don't do it, you know, just one night, like do it a few nights, maybe even a week and see how it feels. See how it feels. See if your body can adjust. See if you're popping up and you feel okay. You might feel okay. If you feel like you need more sleep, then maybe we ratchet it 15 minutes. Maybe we ratchet it 30 minutes. Uh, but it, it will only be effective if we're taking good notes, if we have that notebook to see how we're tracking. It's impossible yeah. to remember everything. <clears throat> That's a good point. Uh, you mentioned white noise. So, White noise. This is one of these ones where I go back and forth and I've never known the answer. So you said that white noise is a good thing for sleep. It actually helps. Yeah. Let me explain why I said that. And if you talk to sleep scientists, um, like all the circles that I'm in, a lot of times they're going to point to pink or brown noise as being more um, appropriate for um, sleep. But I think it's really shooter choice, right? It's our can, own personal before preference. Before you even get to that, can, can you explain those differences? What is pink noise versus brown noise versus white noise? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, and you can download apps to, to listen to the differences, but it's just different frequencies and different pitches. Um, they sound slightly different, but in essence, it's just background noise, right? And we can... Uh, we can duplicate a lot of this with uh, household items. For example, uh, like a lot of my uh, firefighters at the firehouses will have a fan that's already in their bunk room. And so when they turn on that fan, it does a couple of things. One, it cools them off a little bit. And the other is it creates this noise. Now, whether it's technically defined as white noise or pink noise or brown noise depends on the sound that's coming from that particular mechanical device, every fan is different. But what we're hearing is motion and sound being emitted from this device. So the reason why that's important, right, is that um, there was a study uh, done by Dr. Alain Musette, right? And the study surrounded um, noise. And so his question was, is noise going to impact uh, sleep? And I definitely did not think this was real because, you know, in the teams, we got dudes making noise. Stuff is always going on. Um, I remember sleeping on the C5, going out to deployment. Of course, that's probably had something to do with Ambien. But I didn't really believe that noise affected us because it feels like when you go to sleep that you just pass out and right. you turn off the outside world. Like brain shuts off. We go into 
this like weird, almost like dead state. And then sometimes there's some dreaming, but definitely you're cut off from the outside world. So it doesn't matter what noise is going on outside of the, of your body. Uh, when you're asleep, you're asleep. doesn't matter. That was my assumption. And so the question that Dr. Musette was posing was, can I introduce noise and impact sleep as measured by electroencephalogram, which is EEG. It's like this thing you put on your brain. Um, it's a, a critical part of polysonography, which is the gold standard for measuring sleep. It's kind of a, a nightmare to get hooked up to all that stuff. But anyway, so he's measuring a 17 year old male, perfect health. And he wants to measure him one night of sleep, just normal. And then the next night, and he's going to mess with him. He's going to introduce noise into the sleep environment. And so the question is, is it going to impact his sleep? We're measuring him. We'll know. And so he introduced sound at different levels and was able to get a response as measured in the brainwave activities right there, interrupting his sleep cycles by as low as 35 decibels of noise introduction. I'm right now I get excited about this stuff. I'm probably talking at like 70, 80 decibels, right? 35 is nothing, right? So he's trying different decibel levels and he's able to get uh, interruptions in his sleep with as little as 35 decibels. That's insane. That's crazy. Like how are sleep cycles being negatively affected by that little sound? We think about like living in the city and we think about you know, all the noise yeah, that's sure. going on in the environment. And this, and this makes me think of, I had a friend who, an old Vietnam guy who was stationed on a tin can, uh, the USS Hollister. And he was an engine man. When I told him this, uh, or, or whatever he did down in the engine room, when I told him this, he, his, he told me, it's like, Rob, that's not true because I used to sleep down in the engine room and it was as loud as you can possibly imagine. So I thought to myself, well, that's weird. So he's able to sleep in a very loud environment. What, what gives? What's the catch here? And it turns out that the brain has a way of habitualizing these melodic sounds. So if you have like a rhythmic or a melodic sound or something that's somewhat consistent, uh, the brain adjusts. Think of it like a watermark, right? It adjusts the uh the cognition of that sound and so what we're doing with white noise to bring this full circle is we're elevating the yeah. sound volume in the room but we're keeping it melodic the brain can habitualize to that it, it can you know but we're buffering out noise pollution yep so that it. noise spike right that's a 35 decibel spike right that noise spike whether it's 35 or 100 or whatever the baby crying over here the dog barking next door we can buffer that out with white noise or pink yeah. noise or my favorite is a, a thunderstorm with, um, you know, that, that I just love the water park. But whatever it is, as long as it's smooth and melodic and, and you're OK with it, if it's if you don't like it, then don't use it. But that can have a tremendous effect on your sleep because now you're able to go through sleep without any interruptions. OK, that's. That is good to know because my wife is a huge white noise lover. She's always, and I'm somebody who I can take it or leave it. I'm fine like in a quiet hotel room where there's none of that, but I don't mind it. And I've always wondered like, is this really beneficial or is this detrimental somehow? But we typically in our bedroom, we've got the molecule air purifier on the ground and that makes enough noise 
plenty yep. of noise, especially if you spin it up, that it does, it serves as a white noise maker. So that's good. I and mean, we'll keep that. So, so white noise is good. Talk about temperature, because I always hear that a cooler or a colder room is better for sleep. And then light as well, because I've heard things where any amount of light is detrimental, right? Like you need a like blackout curtains and put tape over anything that's got like a little blue light on it. Um, so what about those two things, right? Temperature and then any type of light that might be in your room. Temperature absolutely impacts our ability to sleep. Uh, the CDC did a meta analysis of reported sleep complaints as temperature rose in areas where they didn't have air conditioning. And it's pretty clear that sleep is negatively impacted by increasing temperatures. We all know how hard it was to sleep in Iraq or Afghanistan when it was hot. Um, it turns out that when it's hotter, our bodies have a harder time reducing temperature, which is one of the processes um, that it's actually a marker in sleep science. We look for the lowest core body temperature and we know that uh, we need to, there's a thin membrane in the hypothalamus in our, in our brain that um, is temperature sensitive. And we know that we need to drop about one degree to be able to fall asleep. Um, and so that's why uh, that's the basis for the entire, you know, Uller or chili pad uh, company they provide a mat that cools off the body at nighttime. I prefer bed jet. Um, I like both, but uh, I like the cool air blowing under the sheets. But it's absolutely critical to be able to cool off. If you can't cool off, um, you can still sleep, but it makes it harder for homeostasis within our body to drop that temperature. It makes us harder to go through the processes that we need to go to and can lead to more um, active sleep. You're tossing and turning, and then you might have more uh, perspiration during sleep. Yeah. And so it's best to have a cool temperature. Like think of, you know, when we're alive and awake and it's we're outdoors, we want it uh, hot and sunny and warm. And then at nighttime, we want it nice and cold, cold and quiet and dark. Why and do we so want... it allows our... I just, I'm sorry, just interrupt on that. So... Uh, and I agree, like I definitely feel like I sleep better when the room is cooler or colder even. Why do we want a blanket then? Like what's the purpose of a blanket over us, right? So it's like we want the room cold, but then we want to warm ourselves up by having this blanket over us. And that's, I think, a feeling of comfort too. Like I, I know almost nobody, I'm certainly not like this, who want who is comfortable sleeping with nothing on me, right? It feels weird. Maybe in a nap, sometimes you can fall asleep on the couch and you can nap with like a no blanket. But what is it, what is it about that? Why, why do we want a blanket over us? Yeah, I think it's comfort. Maybe that starts uh, when we come out of the womb, right? We need a little bit of touch, a little bit of pressure. Some people do really well with a weighted blanket. I was they just going to ask like, about that because I've got yeah. a weighted blanket and I, I like it. I'm curious about any science behind that. Yeah, I think there is um, some material on that but all of this stuff i think is is based on preference uh, right. because you know you have one person that's that's like oh man i love you know my down comforter and it's just it's the best and then for me i like something that is uh kind of is is gritty and is holes in it and it kind of like 
lets my heat escape, but is kind of like scratchy and not really that soft. So I like these linen or cotton, like rough type of sheets. Mm. I don't know. Am I weird? Uh, maybe, probably. Uh, but I think every single person is going to have a different answer as to what makes them feel comfortable and help them sleep. So what about, okay, so then the other question, which I, I cut you off, but about the lights, right? So it's, do we have to cover up every single bit of light in our bedroom? Does that negatively affect us? If there's like some little blinking light on a TV or something like that, is that detrimental somehow? It is. It is. Interesting. Um, you know, it is what it is. We we did a lot of things in the teams that were really, you know, pushed the limits of what we understand is, is humanly possible. So it's tough to say, like, you can't sleep with a little blinky light in your room. Of course you can, right? But does it affect us? And, you know, we have tremendous results with the protocols that we have within uh, 62 Romeo. And I do the sleep genius uh, private coaching now. Um, that stuff does affect you. So if we want to, to have the optimal sleep environment, right, we want to try to get it so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. If we can put tape over that uh, blinky light in the room, just like we'd put tape over a chem light so we don't get detected on a dive or something, um, then that absolutely could improve our sleep situation. What I like to talk about is the sleep dojo, right? So this sleep dojo, this is your place of tranquility. This is your bedroom, and they say the bedroom is only for sleep and sex. What we don't want is electronics. We don't want work. We don't want arguments. We don't want anything except for absolute relaxing tranquility. And why not? Because this is our life, and we spend a third of our life sleeping. It's such an important part of our day-to-day our -day recovery and our long-term health. Why not take the time to make this the perfect place for relaxation. It doesn't dual hat as like a work zone or anything else. Like this is our safe space. And when we enter into that place, it's all about relaxation or intimacy with your spouse, but that's it, right? And that allows us to get into the, the mindset of like rest and digest, parasympathetic nervous system, relaxation. And then when we slip into sleep, we get the sleep that we need. So if that means removing the TV of the bedroom, I think that's a good idea. If that means, you know, coming up with something creative so your phone is not in your face the whole night, that's a good idea. If we can tape over the fire alarm blinky light or the thing on the AC unit on the wall, that's a good idea. It turns out that it makes a huge difference uh, in, in folks that I work with uh, on a daily basis. They do that and they're like, wow, I had no idea how much that tiny, tiny little light. We call it Al-An, artificial light at night. And the reason why it's so bad is because our eyes are photoreceptors. Even if you're blind, you can still have this photoreception capability. Almost everything in our body has more than one function. But so our eyes are, are constantly receiving light information. And with the advent of all of these, you know, technological solutions like iPhones and iPads and Kindles and stuff like that, 
um, we're actually introducing a ton of light and it confuses our eyes. It makes it difficult for us to know, okay, this is when I'm supposed to go to bed, not just psychologically, but this is when my, my pineal gland is supposed to start producing the hormone uh, melatonin in my head and, and telling the rest of the body to start doing its own hormonal changes, its own changes to, to produce uh, things that help us with sleep. Like we're not even tracking any of that, right? It just happens naturally. And so we think like, oh, do I feel like going to sleep? Meanwhile, we have all of these things that are telling our body, no, it's, it's not time to go to sleep, stay awake. And so then we have this battle and we can't figure out why. And then as you were kind of pointing out earlier, then we might have bad sleep and then we judge ourselves for our bad sleep and we think we're a bad sleeper. And now we start a psychological cycle that actually impacts our sleep even worse. This is all a vicious cycle. So to answer your question, yes, it does matter. Let's get all the lights that we can out of the bedroom and do ourselves a favor. What about, so the one thing I always think about in that context is evolutionarily, if we were roaming the savannah tens of thousands of years ago and sleeping outside, okay, half the time, at least, you've got the moon shining down on you, right? Does does moonlight fall into that category? Is there Does it not work that way? Yeah, absolutely. That is a, an incredible question. Um, the light that we get from loom or sunset, that's wired into us. That's the light that we want, right? And it's true that sometimes, like we just had a full moon recently, sometimes you're going to have more light at night during a full moon. Does that affect you? Yes, it does affect you. So does the position of the moon. Um, it affects everything about us. Uh, that's a much larger conversation, but you know, the moon definitely affects our moods. It definitely affects how we are. I used to work in the nightclub business back in my twenties. And every time it was a full moon, I could guarantee you there's going to be a fight, right? <laughs> completely different, completely different subject, but absolutely. It's not just, um, the moon's position, but the, the volume of light. And in fact, when we're in countries that have, um, more light, uh, like some of the Nordic countries and then you know, part of the year is just a tremendous amount of light. We see a lot more uh, seasonal affective disorder, right? Yeah. There's a lot, yeah. Of, a lot of depression associated with that. So, yes, <laughs> the light absolutely affects you. Does it um, – so to that point, in terms of sunlight exposure during the day, right, uh, I live in northwest Montana. So I'm pretty far north where the swing in terms of light and dark during the day in a 24-hour cycle – varies widely throughout the year in the middle of the winter sun's coming up at i don't know between 8 and 9 a.m and it's going down between 4 and 5 p.m something like that right and it's a lot easier to go to sleep it's darker more i get see i do get a little bit of seasonal affective disorder i'm more tired but then conversely in the summer like right now it's not dark here until probably 10 30 p.m and it's light at five and i naturally sleep less. It's just the light wakes me up. So do our bodies have that kind of seasonal rhythm too, where just because of the light exposure, we, we don't need as much sleep in the summer when there's more light like that, because it feels like I've just got more energy, right? I'm, I'm awake longer. It's hard. Like I have a real tough time right now. I'd it'd be almost impossible for me to fall asleep at like 9 PM. Cause it's sunny outside Yeah, and I just don't want to do it. And I assume that that's 
kind of natural, right? Like our bodies adjust. Is that accurate? There's too many variables to give you a clear answer there. Um, you know, you haven't lived in Montana your whole life. Where does your, you know, family come from? Like, what are the actual light cycles look like? Um, and also what are the temperature cycles look like? But I would say that um, the general rule is that you want to get consistent and adequate sleep, uh, no matter what season it is, right? So if you're short sleeping because you have too much light in your eyes um, leading up to bed, perhaps there's a way to reduce the light in your space in that wind down period. So if we talked about a seven hour sleep period, you crash out at 11, you wake up at 06, you start your wind down period at 10, maybe there's a way because, you know, like when you, you, uh, your eyes transition, like if we're using nods, right? It, like it takes time. It takes time to kind of transition. So if we give ourselves between 10 and 11 in this example, right, we give ourselves an hour. We want to put ourselves in, we're not sleeping yet. We're just winding down. We want to put ourselves in a situation where it's a little bit darker. So if you're in a situation where it's, it's still light outside, maybe we use blackout curtains, Maybe we're in a room that doesn't allow as much light in. Maybe we take out the electronics out of that room. And now we are using candlelight or amber lights or things that are very uh, more like a sunset. And those, uh, those things are more relaxing. And so with that one hour of time in the lower light settings with less excitement, less arousal, maybe we can do some reading you know, read a book or do some light yoga or some meditation. Within that period of time, we can give our bodies a chance to relax and transition. So that may be all you need. You, you know, if you're, go, you're trying to go straight to bed after being exposed to this uh, light that's, you know, really bleeding off late in the day, um, maybe giving yourself a space where you can do that transition more effectively will help you feel ready so that when you hit the sheets, when you are supposed to, to get adequate sleep, that boom, you fall asleep, no issues. What about, um, so I, I certainly don't bring my phone in the bedroom. We don't have a TV in our bedroom. I, I put my phone in airplane mode and I leave it out in the kitchen or someplace that's not even close to where I'm sleeping. Unless I'm in a hotel and I need the alarm clock. But even then, I still put it in airplane mode. So hopefully it's not transmitting and receiving. What about Wi-Fi? Is that, like we shut off our Wi-Fi at night. Is there Are there any studies that show that, that, that Wi-Fi or <clears throat> EMFs in general disrupt sleep and it's good, a good idea to shut them off at night? That's not the focus of my research and I don't have much information on that, but I will say that it's very interesting and it has been um, a, a point of discussion several times. I would love to do more research on that. And I think that with the advent of 5G, which I sat in on a conference with uh, Qualcomm when they were explaining 5G as it was rolling out, as I understand it, it's not like switching from uh, 2.4 gig to a 5 gig uh, band, like on your uh, Wi-Fi router. Oh, no. 5G is manipulating all available legal bands that the FCC allows. And so you, you're it's like multicast, right? So you're like, you're all this noise is going out on every single channel. So the reason I say that is because these things are working so hard to get data over every channel that initially they were bursting into flames. 
it took a tremendous amount of, of work to get the devices to be able to, to go on the tower oh and not overheat. And they're doing and they're doing edge processing. So they're they're doing more computation, which is part of the whole facial recognition push and AI and all that stuff. But the point is, I think that we're going to see a ton more research in the coming years on the negative impact of the, the EMF and all of the, you know, radio waves, because now it's so present in the city, it's going to be more and more. We're going to start seeing some impacts from that. So I hope to have a better answer for you on the next podcast. But my guess is, is that it does affect you. Yeah, that's my sense too. It's one of these things. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist or wear a tinfoil hat, but I just feel like the more we fill up the electromagnetic spectrum with frequency and energy, it just can't be good for us. I And look, I hope there's research that comes out that's honest about this stuff because unfortunately, there's a lot of money behind telecommunications. And I just, yep. I have the feeling that anything that would show it's actually really harmful to your health would get buried or obfuscated. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's again, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I just feel like the reason we gaff it off is because we can't see it. But if we could see all of this signal energy that's hitting us at all times these days, I think we'd be horrified and terrified too, and probably rightfully so. But anyway, yeah. what about... Um, what about trackers, right? So people wear like a whoop or uh, whatever else there is out there to sort of track sleep. And I know I'm of a couple of minds of this and I want to get your cut on it. I've never done it because as somebody who's prone to sort of anxious thoughts, I think I, it would freak me out more than anything else. It would be like, you didn't get enough sleep last night and your day is going to be ruined. And I think it would be detrimental to know that. Um, even though there might be value there, but then I also wonder about, again, the EMF thing. It's like, okay, well now I've got, now I've got a Bluetooth thing on my body that's transmitting to a phone that's next to me. And so I'm like, it's one of those, like, you can't measure it without impacting the thing you're measuring. And I wonder about that as well. Do you recommend those at all? Like whoop or any kind of like bio tracker thing like that? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Um, you know, my dad and my sister can't wear watches on their wrist because they stop. They stop the watches. It's just a phenomenon that happens because of their electromagnetic field. Wow. It's, it's bizarre. Yes, there's absolutely a ton going on with electronics. And the closer we have them to our bodies, uh, it definitely can affect us. To, to what degree? I don't know. But I think... You made a brilliant point. Um, you know so much about this already. Um, either you did your research or you're just a, a genius, Chris, um, or both. <laughs> or both. Um, but what you said is absolutely true. And with the advent of the sleep tracker in the, in the commercial space for regular people to have access to with Fitbit or Whoop, and they all do different uh most of them have the same sensors, but they all kind of use the algorithm, their own algorithm differently. Some of them are better for certain things. Some of them are better for others. Um, but what you indicated there was that you might uh, have anxiety surrounding the metrics that you get from the sleep measurement. Once all of these things hit the market 
a new diagnosis came out called orthosomnia. And what that means is, is when the, all the sleep data yeah. begins to negatively affect your right. sleep. Yes. It's yes. hilarious. Yeah. But yes, that's actually real. It's a very real thing. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, I mean, I can see value in that. Certainly if if you feel like you're sleeping enough, but you still feel like shit, I mean, I can I get that. But I also feel like, okay, just tap into how you feel. It's like, do I need a tracker to know that I, I'm waking up and I feel like I, that I slept enough when I wake up and feel good? I don't know that I do. It's like, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like we can overanalyze these things. It's That's so fascinating that there's a, a I, syndrome around that. 100%. Yeah. I, I do. So to give you an idea of how I work as Sleep Genius, uh, private sleep coaching and 62 Romeo, it's a similar protocol. I break out all the bells and whistles when I do privates. But in our group setting, uh, the meat and potatoes of this are that we want six weeks of your time. Now, we're only going to ask for uh, an hour for the group classes, a couple hours for the privates, but it's just once a week, you get get together, we talk about the science of sleep, and then we start doing some relaxation techniques and we wanna impact the autonomic nervous system, that um, sympathetic nervous system to parasympathetic nervous system thing we talked about earlier. Um, but the first thing that we do is we measure the sleep. Now we'll do intake surveys and outtake surveys before and after, because that really shows uh, a stark contrast in, in you know, where we started and where we ended up, but we do two things. And the first week is only a baseline. The two things are objective and subjective measurements, right? So during this period of time that we have uh, people in the program, we're going to measure them. Now, I know we just said uh, orthosomnia, so we, we try to mitigate that by getting the sleep measurement device set up and then don't look at it. Now, we know people are going to look at it, but try not to look at it, right? The way that we make this as easy as possible, because, you know, when you have a device that you have to charge, then you're looking at it and you're playing with it and you're looking at your score and all that. We use something for our objective measurements called the Withing Sleep Mat. Now, we can use anything we want, but we chose the Withing Sleep Mat because it's a, an airbag. It's a ballistic cardiogram that goes under your mattress. You plug it into USB, connect it to your Wi-Fi, and theoretically, you never have to touch it again, right? And once we make the uh, authentication link with our cloud, then we're pulling that data and they can just forget about it, right? And it automatically records. I love automatic because it's team guy proof. You can't mess it up. Just don't touch it, right? Yeah. So that does, that gives us an objective measurement. Now it's not, it's not always accurate. We know that anything that's not polysomnography is not the gold standard, but we can get within about 80% accuracy with almost any sleep device. Is that enough? Well, if you plot a line over the 42 days that we take measurements, we can see a trend. So maybe it's not perfectly accurate, but we can see a trend. The other thing that we do is subjective measurements. That's your sleep diary. We do everything digital. So we just, we automate it and we ping uh, the individual in the morning and they write down um, their sleep journal, their sleep log, the stuff that I mentioned before. And so in that way, we have a subjective measurement. Like, how did you feel about sleep? And so some of the things that we see are like, I think I went to bed at 10. 
that's not what the withing sleep mat said, right? You actually went to bed at 1030, right? Or whatever. So we have a little bit of difference between what you felt like happened and what the data is telling us. Remember, the data is not always accurate, but neither is your memory. And so we really need that 42 days to take a look at every single, we have an entire staff that does this, to take a look at every single data point and see like, what is the difference between the objective and subjective data and what does the trend show, right? And so in that way, we know how you're doing. We know how you're doing. And the beautiful thing is, I'll I'll tell you the secret to success with what we're doing right now, Chris, is habit formation. We establish good habits, And after four or five weeks, we start to see the physiological results of those behavioral mechanisms that we put in place. That's all it takes. You know, you're not going to see results on week one after January 1st when you put the down payment on the gym membership. It's going to be month two. Right. When you exactly, yep. No, yeah. it's exactly what I talk about in terms of mind fitness as well, right? Mental health in general. It's just, it's not an overnight success type of thing. And it's an ongoing thing. Like sleep's part of that as well, right? It's like you can't <laughs> bank it and then be like, okay, now I'm good. I can, now I can get crappy sleep the rest of my life. It's like, no, yeah. every, every night you got to do it. So talk about more about 62 Romeo specifically, what it is, who it supports, what you're doing, how somebody can get involved, what the program is, all of that. 62 Romeo was founded after we had a successful uh, study back in the summer of 2021. We were really blown away at what we could do by applying some very simple tools, right? No pills, no drugs, no surgery, nothing like that. Uh, Just good behavioral practices. And it was so impactful that I said, we, we can't stop this. We have to get this out to the people that need it. So we started a nonprofit called 62 Romeo. Uh, basically, we have a six-week program for veterans and first responders. You can find out more or apply for the program at 62romeo.org. Uh, that's the website. It's got all the information there. Um, That program has helped a ton of people already. We haven't even been open for business for uh, one full year. And we've had such a profound effect changing lives, people that are struggling with mental health, people that are struggling with physical health, having complete turnarounds. It's so impactful that now we're getting, you know, donations from different groups. We're getting the application list. We've done zero marketing. It's all word of mouth. We can't even keep up with the applicants coming through the door. We're working on expanding. We're working on getting more resources. We, you know, I just finished training a sleep coach. We're working on expanding all that because there are millions of veterans and hundreds of thousands of first responders that need help today. They're struggling. We have a very effective solution that not only doesn't use the pills, drugs, or surgery, but these are things that you can use for the rest of your life. So it's basically training. You come in, you get the training, we hold you accountable, we see the progress, and then we release you into the wild. We call them sleep ambassadors. The people that finish the program are sleep ambassadors. And we believe that. And they are going back to their individual departments and commands and making ripple effects, changing the culture, improving our knowledge about sleep. And so this this is my my life's work. This is my passion. And what and, and it's no cost to these people that are going through the program. So we have done traditionally uh, donation from an organization and then we pay for a certain amount of people to come through the class. But what we noticed is that, and I think you'll agree with this, is that sometimes people are blowing us off, 
right? And it's tremendously frustrating for the staff. So if we have somebody that comes in and they get approved and we send them hundreds of dollars of equipment, you know, most of it's equipment and, and uh, we have to pay the sleep coach or whatever, but we keep everything at cost. But if we're sending out equipment and then somebody ghosts us, that really kind of gets under my skin. It's like, really? We took all the time to do this. And then the other thing is that sometimes when people come into a free program, they don't take it seriously. So mm-hmm. we talk with some of our sponsors and every single sponsorship is going to be different. But the current model that we're sort of transitioning to is it costs about a thousand bucks to put people through the entire six week program that we have an entire staff soup to nuts is really well done. That is at cost. So a lot of times what we're doing, for example, like with the, the RASCO, the Reliable Automatic Sprinkler Company donations for firefighters, is they're going to offer a 80% scholarship. So they're going to give them 80% of the cost is covered. And then that last 20% or 200 bucks, they need to cough that up and pay for it. Now, they may be able to get that reimbursed through their education stipend at their work or through a health and wellness program. But the point is now they have a little bit of skin in the game. And 200 bucks is nothing compared to we are changing lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if they're able to put that forward, that tiny contribution, then you know, everything else is covered and we put them through the program and nine times out of 10, we're going to have a higher engagement once you have a little bit of skin in the game. And I, I think it just works for everybody. Plus the donations go a little bit farther. And it's a six week program, but it sounds like they do it at their own home, right? This isn't an in-house situation. They're just being sent the items and then they're doing everything on their own, right? That's correct. This is a hundred percent virtual uh, there's no insurance needed. There's no doctor's referral needed. Uh, we keep it at the lowest level in terms of, uh, you know, you, we don't need a licensed healthcare provider because the, the ratio for veterans right now to CBTI professionals is a thousand to one. We're never going to make a difference at that rate. So we have a 160 hour sleep coach program. And we have sleep coaches that host virtual classes, 15 people per class. We're looking at expanding that number right now. And they will meet once a week over Zoom. And over the course of six weeks, there's education, there's instruction. People spend, you know, five or 10 minutes every day doing some relaxation techniques or some breathing techniques. They have homework. They, they start to schedule their sleeping they start to make sure that it, you know, integrates with their work and with their spouse. And over the course of six weeks, they shape their entire sleep future. And it's really brilliant. I, I think this is the only way that we're going to be able to impact the millions of people that need us now is by keeping it, uh, keeping low barriers to entry, keeping it very low cost and expanding outward with these classes as fast as possible. Yeah. Let me ask a couple more questions here. And then uh, I, I'm, I want to be respectful of your time and I've got to go as well. But um, for people that are just trying to improve their sleep on their own, um, we, we talked about a bunch of things. What about uh, mattresses? Because there's a gazillion mattress companies out there that tout their various you know, benefits and things like that. Is there one particular or a few that you recommend? Does it really matter? Is it all just a bunch of bullshit that's all marketing or... No, I don't. I don't think it's BS. I think it does matter. Um, But again, shooter choice, man. Like I, I remember getting a uh, a Tempur-Pedic mattress and I took it home and I'm like, this is awesome. And my feelings about the mattress were that it was the best thing since sliced bread. But then I slept on it and it took some time. It took a couple years before I realized that 
I was sweating profusely because I'm just a hot sleeper. Mm-hmm. And then this type of mattress was not good for me because it was just trapping my heat. So there's nothing against tempur mattresses. They feel amazing and they're great, but it wasn't a good fit for me. So each individual person really needs to figure out, do they want firm? Do they want soft? Do, what materials do they like? But I definitely think it's a good investment to get a good mattress uh, because if it helps you get sleep, like we've talked about, it, it bleeds off into every aspect of your life, uh, your right. health, your mental health, your endocrine function, like your weight gain, weight loss, like everything is tied to sleep. So I would make the investment. Okay. Yep. Good to know. Uh, last couple things you mentioned way back at the beginning, we talked about how for a lot of us, veterans, first responders, whatever, the reason we're having trouble sleeping is because we're hypervigilant essentially, or we're, we've got that sort of limbic system loop that's going on. And so what do you do outside of sleep, right? So the, if the, if the problem is kind of what, what you're doing when you're not sleeping, that's making it so your sleep is screwed up. What do we do to wind that down or change that so that when we get in bed, we can actually fall asleep and stay asleep? Outside of some a biofeedback algorithm that I'm working on right now, we're not actually doing anything while we're asleep, which is, is kind of funny, right? Everything that we do within the Sleep Genius private coaching and the 62 Romeo uh, program are things that you're doing while you're awake. Yeah. So really, we're just changing things, thoughts and things, behaviors that we're doing while we're awake. And sleep is really the barometer of how well we've done that uh, waking period, right? So, you know, all the things that we talked about are important. And then I would add that um, specifically with veterans and first responders that might be struggling with PTSD, we don't have to call it PTSD. We can call it PTS. Or if we just want to talk about anxiety or, you know, work stress, all of those things can lead to a chaotic transition to the hypnagogic state. I love that word, right? It's this transition into sleep. But no matter what, if I'm, if I'm trying to make a blanket recommendation, no matter what your situation is, I think it's important to give ourselves time to relax. And everybody has a different process. Uh, for me, I enjoy breathing exercises and meditation. There's an app called Insight Timer. It's the number one meditation app uh, that offers free meditation and breathing exercises. Uh, you can go on there and just explore things. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be woo-woo. Um, you can do you know hardcore breathing exercises. But establishing a routine of reducing anxiety getting into that rest and digest state, using these techniques that work, right, is critical to the long-term success, your long-term success with sleep. So during that that wind-down period, that one hour before bed that I keep coming back to, we want to find things that help us relax. You know, maybe it's, it's just a little bit of stretching. Maybe it's a little bit of just um, journaling, like some people really find a lot of um, positive effects through gratitude journaling, just yep. writing down things that are, are positive in your life. If you're more uh, religious, it's okay to take that time to have some prayer, right? Whatever it is for you individually that works to help relax, that's the stuff that we want to do. And if the question is, oh man, I just don't really feel like it. Okay, now it's a talk of discipline. Like you just need 
to take care of yourself. You just need to do this stuff. Yep. Um, I have a very stoic speaking approach. Speaking my to language, sleep. man. <laughs> speaking your language. Yep. Um, okay, I gotta get rolling here. But uh, any anything we didn't cover, we can get you back on. Obviously, there's actually some other stuff I want to dive into with you. But um, anything else, big topic wise, that we didn't hit regarding sleep that you want to make sure people hear about? I think we did a really great job of covering a lot of different aspects of sleep. Uh, Next time we talk, if you are able to get me back on the podcast, what I'd like to talk about is the, the, the continuum of health, mental health, sleep health, uh, check-ins. How do we manage a career in the military or first response smartly while taking all of this new information, yeah. all this science, all the good sleep health into account, how do we make sure that people aren't straying too far uh, in terms of their mental health away from a good, healthy point throughout their career? Are there uh, check gates? Is there a way to build that into the entire uh, career process? No. And I think I have some answers. So yeah, I'd love to no, talk about that more. I definitely want to talk about that because it's something that I think about and try to figure out as well from a, just a overall mind fitness, mental health perspective, right? How do we get ahead of these things so we don't have to fix people, but we can make sure they're trained from the get go on how to be mindful and how to do breath work and how to sleep properly, right? Like what we want is people being able to have a longer career and be healthy throughout the whole thing and not emerge broken on the other side, right? And, and suicidal and not all these things. And I think if we can inject some of this into training modalities, I think we can make a lot of progress. And I think that that discussion needs to happen for sure. So completely um, agree. Rob, uh, you, you mentioned you, the website for 62 Romeo, any other, uh, places out there people can find you or connect with you? You know, I'm always on social media. Um, I have a LinkedIn profile. I have a Twitter profile. I have a IG profile and believe it or not, I have a TikTok profile. Um, and it's all sleep genius. Okay. So you can just find me as sleep genius. Um, I didn't give myself that name. Um, it was another team guy that called me that after, uh, seeing the work that I was doing, but it stuck. So I'll own it. Um, it's, it's funny, but, um, I'm the sleep genius. So okay. you can find me on socials that way. Great. Well, Rob, I really appreciate it, man. Great talking to you about this stuff and, uh, hope to do it again, man. Appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks brother. Thanks for listening to the Rare Sense Podcast. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe on any of the major streaming platforms and leave a five-star review if you love it. Also, if you're interested in monthly articles, weekly mind training, and monthly book recommendations, please subscribe to the Rare Sense Substack at rarsense.substack.com. It's currently free. You can also connect with me on all major social media platforms at This Chris Irwin, and that includes a YouTube channel which has video versions of the podcast episodes, as well as video versions of various mind training exercises. You can also check out additional content at the RareSense website, rarsense.com. There you'll find a 20-day challenge gear that you can purchase and a contact form if you'd like to connect with me and potentially have me speak to your organization about mind fitness. Thanks again for listening. 